Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, December 17th. In today's news, congressional leaders add stimulus checks to a draft relief bill as they near a deal. Baseball is finally addressing its racist past in a long overdue way. And after that blast in Beirut destroyed a church, volunteers race to rebuild it by Christmas Eve. But first, the big idea. The FDA says that pharmacists can draw additional doses from vials of the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine, potentially expanding the country's supply by millions of doses. Pharmacists began to notice that vials contain more than the expected five doses. The supply of remaining vaccine could end up being up to 40% greater, though the drugmaker cautions it's uncertain how many extra doses exactly are available. The FDA and Pfizer also caution that any leftover vaccine from different vials that's smaller than a full dose shouldn't be mixed together, which experts say risks cross-contamination. A spokeswoman for Pfizer says the amount of vaccine remaining in vials after the removal of five doses varies depending on the type of needles and syringes used. Joe Biden's team says the president-elect will get the vaccine as soon as next week. Vice President Pence will receive the Pfizer vaccine tomorrow morning live on camera, So will his wife, Karen, and Surgeon General Jerome Adams. Meanwhile, federal health officials said yesterday that they're in talks with Pfizer to purchase tens of millions of additional doses this spring, after the drug company said the U.S. probably would have to wait until summer. Federal officials have insisted they have enough doses with the other vaccines likely to receive emergency authorization, including the Moderna vaccine, which is in line to get approved later this week. Trump administration officials yesterday also defended their decision this summer to decline to purchase the additional Pfizer vaccine doses when they had the chance. In Alaska, a healthcare worker had a severe allergic reaction to the Pfizer vaccine. After a night in the hospital, she's now stable and has been discharged. Federal officials praised the Alaska hospital for following monitoring guidelines and catching the woman's reaction and treating her promptly. Lena Sun and Joel Achenbach report that those guidelines advise that people with no history of allergic responses, which was this woman, be observed for 15 minutes after receiving a shot. And those who have a history of severe allergic reactions should be observed for 30 minutes. This Alaska health worker, described as middle-aged but otherwise not identified, began flushing and experiencing other signs of allergic responses within 10 minutes of receiving the shot. She's not going to be given the second vaccine. Sadly, the vaccines cannot come fast enough to stop the cascade of death. Yesterday was once again the deadliest day of the pandemic to date in America. At least 3,367 Americans died, and at least 233,651 new cases were reported nationwide. One of them was Congressman Joe Wilson, a Republican from South Carolina, who revealed that he tested positive just hours after delivering a speech on the House floor. During his remarks, he effusively praised President Trump's handling of the contagion and credited him for the vaccine. Wilson says he'll quarantine through Christmas. Another person who tested positive yesterday here in Washington was Interior Secretary David Bernhardt. The 51-year-old was at the White House for a cabinet meeting with Trump. Once he tested positive, the asymptomatic secretary didn't go into the session with the president. He did cancel a large indoor holiday party that was scheduled for later today at Interior Headquarters. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo also canceled his major final holiday party of the year after he was exposed to a person who tested positive, which has forced him into quarantine. Pompeo has hosted literally hundreds of dignitaries and diplomats over the past week. 
A department spokesman refused to tell us when Pompeo came into contact with the infected person. And in Paris overnight, French President Emmanuel Macron tested positive. He was given a test after exhibiting symptoms and must now isolate for seven days. He attended a European Union summit at the end of last week and met yesterday at his palace with Portugal's prime minister. Back here in the States, our hospitals are now inundated with a record number of COVID patients. More than 110,000 people are in the hospital with COVID this morning, breaking the record that was set yesterday. For context, this is more than three times the number of people who were in hospitals in September and nearly double the height of the spring surge. In Boston, pediatric wards are being consolidated to fit all the adults battling COVID. Philadelphia hospitals are again barring family visitors due to worries about transmission. In Los Angeles, a public hospital has canceled all elective and scheduled surgeries because it doesn't have any beds to spare. Mounting hospitalizations in these and other states are pushing hospital systems past their breaking points. Many are scrambling to reconfigure themselves to handle the crush of patients that are streaming in not just because of the holiday gatherings, but also because of the arrival of flu season. California is reporting more cases right now than most countries in the world, including India, Germany, and Britain. Southern California has emerged as the brightest red hotspot with 0.5% availability of its intensive care beds. In the past week, 18 states have set single-day records for patients hospitalized with COVID. Mounting hospitalizations in Arizona, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and North Carolina are pushing regions uh, into crisis conditions. The good news is that the upper Midwest and the Plain states are finally appearing to plateau. One of the reasons this is all so unbelievably scary is that the widespread nature of the contagion at this point means that healthcare systems are not able to share the burdens as they have for the last nine months. This is especially bad for folks who live in rural America. They're grappling with overflow conditions because their larger partners in urban centers have stopped accepting transfers. Such facilities are dependent on formal or informal partnerships with other institutions to handle critically ill patients after decades of financial challenges forced many rural hospitals to close and the ones that remain to greatly reduce their capacity. Consider Norton County in Kansas. With outbreaks in the local nursing home and the prison, this county of 5,400 people has seen some of our nation's highest per capita rates of infection the last month, but the hospital only has 25 beds. Norton Hospital has had to greatly expand the distance it sends patients as the larger systems that typically take its people have turned them away. Normally, the hospital sends patients needing a higher level of care an hour and a half away by ambulance to Hayes Medical Center, a regional hub that's so packed that it had to turn away more than 100 patients one day last month. Now, as a result of that, Norton Hospital must send critical patients three and a half hours to Wichita or five hours away to Omaha. And they just needed to send one patient all the way to Denver, which is six hours away, because no other hospital would take them. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one. Congressional leaders here are nearing agreement on a $900 billion economic relief package that will probably include a second round of stimulus checks and could be completed by the end of the week. Senators have been told to stick around for votes on Saturday. The package emerging is expected to include hundreds of billions of dollars in aid for ailing small businesses and jobless Americans, tens of billions of aid in other critical needs such as vaccine distribution and for schools, and a one-time check of between $600 to $700, they're negotiating that part, 
for millions of Americans below a certain income threshold. The relief bill is likely to be coupled with other major legislative efforts, including legislation to fund federal agencies to avert a shutdown and a bipartisan effort to rein in surprise medical billing, although it's been watered down. Lawmakers could then pass one bill in a matter of days. Lawmakers are racing to get something done before Christmas because of public dissatisfaction, but also widespread signs of rapid economic deterioration. Number two, the Negro Leagues are now major league in the eyes of the MLB. For decades, baseball historians and fans have accepted it as gospel that Willie Mays collected 3,283 hits in his career, that Bob Feller threw the only opening day no-hitter in baseball history, and that the top three batting averages of all time belonged to Ty Cobb, Rogers Hornsby, and Shoeless Joe Jackson. To suggest otherwise was to provoke a bar fight, or at the very least a peaceful consulting of Google. But yesterday, in a monumental change for the sport, Major League Baseball announced it as elevating the 1920-1948 Negro Leagues to Major League status. This move not only seeks to right a cosmic wrong that has shattered the game for a century, the segregation of baseball that famously ended when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947, but it also forces a wholesale recalibration of the record books. It is the result of years of study by volunteer researchers who've been poring over newspaper clippings, scorebooks, and other historical records to compile more accurate statistics. Dave Shinen reports that, in effect, yesterday's move overturns a notorious decision by a committee of five white men back in 1969 to codify the historical standards that define the major leagues. Those guys bestowed big league status on six leagues, including the Union Association, which played only one season in 1884, but they never even considered, including the Negro Leagues. Here's one of the things that changes because of yesterday's announcement. Bob Feller's legendary opening day no-hitter in 1940, still great, will share that special honor with Leon Day of the Negro League's Newark Eagles. He threw a no-hitter against the Philadelphia Stars on opening day in 1946. Now, Leon passed away in 1995 at age 78, but reached at her home in Maryland last night. Leon's widow, Geraldine, said he just would have loved this. Just loved it, she said. She said it really would have meant the world to him. Number three, it's been a long year, but think back to August. Remember that huge explosion of ammonium nitrate at that port in Beirut that destroyed a pretty significant swath of that historic capital? About 2,600 buildings were damaged, one-third of them heavily, with the failed and corrupt Lebanese government shirking responsibility for rebuilding the city. There is no grand plan. Instead, Lives are being reconstructed brick by building, by block. For months, charities have worked around the clock and around the coronavirus to rebuild bits of the broken city. When the explosion erupted, Nicole Sphere was in her hometown, 16 miles outside Beirut, an architect by training. She was unemployed at the time and desperate to leave Lebanon with dreams of moving to America. Instead, by chance, she connected through a friend with Offer Joy, a Lebanese charity that dates back to that country's civil war. She decided to go to Beirut to volunteer her talents, and she's been there since August. She's responsible for one street in the hard-hit Carantina neighborhood. But she's been fixated on a single particular site, a blasted-out Maronite Christian church. Nicole has been consumed by details of the century-old neighborhood landmark, from how best to reconstruct its sandstone walls to the ceiling's intricate wooden arc. 
She's tried to incorporate more natural light for enhanced spirituality. Nicole says her 30-member team will do whatever it takes to make sure that the church is fully rebuilt in time to have a service on Christmas Eve. She told our Miriam Berger that the hardest days are when construction materials are delayed or when it rains, interrupting work and exposing every crack still left to fix. Nicole's favorite moments, though, are when residents stop by to ask about the church's progress, reminding her of the community at the heart of it all. She admires how dedicated people are to the church, inquiring about it before the status of their own homes. Amid the clinking and the clanking of construction, Nicole says the people who live on that block and go to that church cannot get back up on their feet by themselves. She said she feels called to do all she can to help them stand up. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, December 17th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.